In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, cleanse my heart and my lips, Almighty God, that I may proclaim your gospel worthily. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Jesus raised his eyes to heaven and said, Holy Father, I pray not only for these, but for those also, who through their words will believe in me. May they all be one. Father, may they be one in us as you are in me, and I am in you, so that the world may believe it was you who sent me. I have given them the glory you gave to me, that they may be one as we are one, with me in them and you in me. May they be so completely one that the world will realize that it was you who sent me, and that I have loved them as much as you loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they may always see the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Father, righteous one, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you have sent me, I have made your name known to them, and will continue to make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and so that I may be in them. The Gospel of the Lord. I am often asked if I have a KPI for my leaders, and my answer is, yes, he or she has to be a unifier. It would be good if I could have a skillful, talented, super-efficient leader who can multitask, but I would rather live with mediocrity and even incompetency than to have someone who ticks all the right boxes but has a pension for sowing discord in the community. If I had a second criterion for my leaders, what would it be? And my answer is integrity. A unifier without integrity would be an oxymoron. You can't have unity at the price of foregoing truth and honesty, and you can't truly speak of truth without wanting to deepen the bonds of unity. William Wallace, the leading character in the movie Braveheart, chastises fellow Scots for allowing minor issues, internal strife, and power struggles to stand in the way of their fight for independence from the English. He told them, We have beaten the English, but they are back because you won't stand together. I feel that is what is happening far too often in the church. Since last year, our Holy Father, Pope Francis, has been calling all of us to get on board his initiative of moving the Catholic Church on the path of synodality. If you still haven't heard of this, you must have been living in a bomb shelter or a Soviet-era goulage in Siberia for the past year. The word synod comes from two Greek root words, which mean common path or more popularly translated as journeying together. This should be good news. We should be starting to see how unity within the church is being strengthened by leaps and bounds with such a focused project and a theme. And yet, sadly, it is quite the opposite. What we witness today 
and this has been happening for some time. It's not a single global Catholic church with all one billion of her members happily and willingly journeying together, but quite the opposite. Nobody can turn a blind eye to the fact that divisions you normally witness in secular political discourse have now become staple within the church. Catholics within the same sheepfold often demonize others across the ideological divide. The teachings of Vatican II are being denied and subverted in open contradiction to Vatican II by many Catholics, not only by ultra-traditionalists, but also by those who hide behind the banner of being hardline defenders of Vatican II. And despite all the apparent enthusiasm proponents of Vatican II expressed for Pope Francis, they flatly deny the authority conferred on him by Christ as a successor of Peter. They just agree with him because it is convenient to do so. They think he agrees with them. Call it theological projection. You see what you want to see when you're enclosed in an echo chamber. The moment the Pope takes a different position, they are most ready to throw him under the bus. On all fronts, there seem to be so many factors which are tearing at the church's fabric of unity and threatening permanent rupture. Could our Lord have foreseen all these when he first composed this prayer to the Father? Holy Father, I pray not only for these, but for those also who through their words will believe in me. May they all be one. Father, may they be one in us as you are in me, and I am in you, so that the world may believe it was you who sent me. In Jesus' last words in the Gospel of John, in his dying wish expressed in his priestly prayer to the Father, he asked that they may all be one, as the Holy Trinity is one. The unity of the Church should reflect the unity of the Father and the Son. Our unity is our most evident proof of the truth about the Lord's identity and mission. When the church is divided by conflict, we not only hurt our witness in the world, but we also cast doubts on the Lord's identity and mission. If many continue to reject that our Lord is the only begotten Son of the Father, sent into the world to save us by his death, we have only our poor witness to blame. Our internal fights and disagreements make our words and testimony weak and unbelievable. Our disunity is doing the work and mission of Christ a disservice. Our Lord must have understood that disagreements are very much part of the fabric of relationships and community living. That is why he prayed for unity just before his own death and why, when he returned to his disciples after his resurrection, the first gift he conferred upon this community is the Holy Spirit tied with the authority to forgive sins. This is at the heart of the sacrament of penance. It is clear that unity within the church is not just conformity or affability among her members. To be one is not the absence of opinions. Opinions are healthy, but since we can hold differing opinions, our unity must go beyond just mere good intentions and platitudes. Unity in a church consists in the visible incorporation into the body of Christ, what we call creed, code, and cult. 
doctrinal, sacramental, ecclesiastical, or hierarchical communion, as well as in the union of the heart that is in the Holy Spirit. Without these visible and invisible bonds, any man-made unity remains tenuous and susceptible to fraction. This is the reason why this visible communion of the church, that we are in agreement with the teachings, the disciples and disciplines and liturgical tradition of the church, must be a prerequisite for us receiving Holy Communion. We receive communion only because we are in communion. Finally, truth, not the threat of violence, holds our Lord's sheepfold together. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Living his truth does not enslave. It liberates. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The freedom of love does not come with mere compliance. It comes with the realization that truth, liberty, and God's commandments are inseparable. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Because of its foundation in truth, Christian unity is not populism. Unity cannot be manufactured by our efforts to accommodate, to compromise, to get along and fit in, and then feel good about it. We cannot put unity above truth because it seems more comfortable to do that. Unity is not just public relations exercise for public consumption. It is a call to conversion and repentance. If sin, whether in the form of envy, selfishness, pride, hostility, prejudice, resentment, is what divides us, then only repentance and conversion can lead us back to authentic unity. In a world which is fractured and polarized along ideological, sectarian, and ethnic lines, the Church provides us with a radical model of community which transcends such distinctions and divisions. So let us not just pay lip service to unity. Let us constantly and fervently pray for it, work at it, and allow ourselves to be transformed so that we may be fruits of our Lord's dying wish and prayer. May they all be one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.